Hello, and welcome to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. I'm Chris Triano, joined always by Stephen Canistrisi. Hello, we're back, everybody. Welcome to Season 2. This is going to be Episode number 21, where we are featuring Rodney Marsalis and discussing Francis Johnson. It's great getting to meet Rodney and getting to talk about one of the, what we call the, the sleepers of early American brass playing. Francis Johnson's a name that a lot of you have probably heard of before. Probably a lot of you have not heard of him. And that's what we, or that's what we mean as a sleeper. We really think that, that Francis Johnson is a name that, that needs to be learned and known more. So hopefully you enjoy this talk with Rodney Marcellus about Francis Johnson. What do yeah. you think, Stephen? Well, yeah, I, I mean, I, I totally agree. I mean, he's on the earlier end of things, um, you know, as we, we, we've covered a lot of ground on the show so far in season one, and Francis Johnson definitely covers the earlier part, you know, the, um, he was born... 1790s? Yes, yeah, so, you know, active before the Civil War in Philadelphia, um, but, I mean, really prolific output of music. I mean, he was composing all the time for all sorts of things. Um, he toured Europe, he, you know, toured out in what during the time was the western part of the country. <laughs> now has <laughs> yeah. expanded more. Uh, but um, really someone who was very active and contributed a whole lot um, to the American band movement. But um, the name has kind of maybe gotten a little lost along the way. Yeah, I I've, I've felt very fortunate to have Rodney on uh, to talk about him. And, you know, I think the three of us all agree that he's a very important figure. So it was uh, good to, to devote a whole episode to to him, his life and his his work. So I really enjoyed the interview. If you like what you're hearing, you can support us on social media. Um, all social media platforms as well as YouTube. Uh, you can also visit our website. That's eabbpodcast.com. There's a bunch of resources up there. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, any social media will do. We also have an email address if you like to do things uh, via email. That's eabb.podcast at gmail.com. We also have a brand new way to support the show, um, and that is Patreon. So Patreon lets you support uh, the show. Uh, we have a few tiers of kind of like monthly memberships um it's a kind of you can think of it as a monthly donation uh that goes to cover the costs of producing the show um which we offer the show free uh, but there are a few costs on the back end for hosting and things so the patreon uh we would really appreciate any support that you're willing to give on patreon that would go uh to help um cover the operating costs of the show and help us improve the show for future episodes and future seasons. So that's something you can do now. And we will have a link to that up on our website. Uh, there will also be a link to Patreon in the description of the episode. If you're interested in checking that out. And as we said, there is absolutely no obligation to support us on Patreon, but if you feel the need to do so, uh, we would greatly appreciate that. Without further ado, here is our season two premiere Episode 21, featuring Rodney Marcellus on Francis Johnson. Well, thank you, Rodney Marcellus. Thank you so much for coming on to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. It's an honor for us to be talking to you, uh, a performer and an educator and a showman such as yourself. It's it's so great to be able to have you on the show to, to pick your brain about uh, an icon of the Early American Brass Band world. So thank you so much. Well, Chris and Steven, it's great to be here with you guys. Looking forward to it. So maybe we can uh, 
first maybe just touch a little bit on your musical background and kind of what got you interested up to this point of the topic that we'll be talking about today. So uh, for our listeners, can you maybe give us a little bit of your musical background? Sure. Um, really briefly, I'm, I'm from New Orleans, um, and that's really where I started playing music. Um, on the advice of my cousin, Ellis Marcellus, um, he, told, I, he told my mom, you know, if he wants to pick an instrument, he should pick something where he could play a lot of different styles, like the trumpet. So um, I was actually, I wanted to play clarinet because I was really <laughs> short, so that was the only instrument I could see when I went to a band concert. <laughs> I want to play that long black thing. And, and he said, no, 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 he played clarinet, actually. But he said, no, you should play something more versatile, like the trumpet. So that's how it started, and um, I eventually ended up taking lessons with Winton. And um, right before Winton went off to Juilliard, he taught me for a year, and that's when things started to get really serious. Winton really showed me how to practice. Um, so then I went off to Boston University and studied with Roger Boisin. And um, in two years, he got me ready, and one I won an orchestra audition with New Orleans Symphony. So I did that for a bit, and then. Then um, right before that, I played uh, a concerto with uh, Boston Pops and John Williams, and, um, <laughs> and and then I went off and and I worked for a little bit with the symphony. And as you guys know, symphony orchestras, you know, they can be very unstable. And <laughs> going back to school because um, the orchestra kind of they stopped working, and um, but it was a good thing. I ended up at Curtis Institute of Music, and I had three years of real solid study, just locked in a practice room for six hours a day. Um, and so then I, when I came out, um, and I was a little stir crazy, but, but I could play the trumpet pretty well. So I won a couple of auditions um, at, in, at the Denver Symphony and San Diego Symphony. And I was very superficial and I picked San Diego because it looked much nicer in the magazines and <laughs> warmer. And um, I went from San Diego, I ended up being principal trumpet of Barcelona Symphony well, actually, before that, I went to the Canary Islands, which is where I should have stayed because it's <laughs> beautiful and a great orchestra. And they, and they, yeah, it was wonderful. But then I went to uh, Barcelona Symphony, had a principal trumpet opening, and I ended up uh, winning that job. And, um, and then it hit a point where I was just like, I'm going to come home. And I came back to the United States. And so I'm here. And I landed in Philadelphia and um, just outside the city here. And I'm principal of the Chamber Orchestra. And, and I do my group, so that's kind of kind of been my trajectory to to get me here to Philadelphia. Yeah, that's so awesome. Yeah, so during that whole time, uh, was your focus mainly uh, symphony orchestra, or what you were alluding to earlier with trumpet and different styles was was that kind of creeping in that whole time as well? It was. I mean, I was I trained to play an orchestra. That's especially when I was with Roger Boisin at Boston University and. Curtis with Frank Cataravic and and when I was in New England Conservatory briefly with Charlie Schluter, it was all about playing an orchestra. That's you know that's when you're in a conservatory, that's what you study to do. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. and yeah, that's mostly what I worked on, and and the solo solo materials, classical solo materials. Gotcha, gotcha. And then was it landing in Philadelphia that kind of brought your attention to Francis Johnson, or was that a name that had already been in the back of your mind prior to no. being in Philadelphia? No, I had never heard of Francis Johnson. Uh, and when I got to Philadelphia, I was uh, I was maybe 40 years old. Um, and I'd never heard of Francis Johnson. But I was in the library. No, no that's, I was in the museum. 
And I remember I was looking at a painting and I think it was a trumpet player and an older gentleman came up to me and said, hey, uh, you know, what do you, do you play trumpet? And I was like, yeah. He was like, well, you must have heard of Francis Johnson. <laughs> I was like, no, who's that? <laughs> you never heard of Francis Johnson. You play trumpet and <laughs> you live here in Philadelphia. Like, yeah, who is that? <laughs> he said, you need to do some research. <laughs> And that's what started it. And I, um, yeah, that's, that was how the interest started because when I started to research who he was and what he did in this area, I mean, it's just amazing. It's just so amazing. what, what kind of, uh, research was involved in, in your gaining of knowledge of Francis Johnson? Were, were you mainly in that museum or hopping libraries no. or what was going on? Libraries. Well, there, there's a library in Chicago. Um, I think it's called the Center for Black Music Research. I might be getting that name wrong. Mm -hmm. But um, well, the first thing that happened was uh, when I started to do a little bit of research, I found out that someone was interested in us doing a concert here in Philadelphia to celebrate Francis Johnson. So I went to this library in Chicago um, and because some of the books are out of print, the mm -hmm. books that I needed to read. Um, so I just stayed there for a couple of days and just went to the library every day at this one special library. And then back here in Philadelphia, you can actually look at the manuscripts, like the real manuscripts. I mean, you go into a special room, they make put gloves on and yeah. you can flip through. Yeah. And that's, you yeah, know, that's incredible. Yeah. A piece of history, you know, and I, so I did that and they actually would let you, um, they knew that I was going to be doing this concert. So they let us make copies and create arrangements um, mm -hmm. based on the music. That we found yeah, cool. you know, we were well past uh, all the copyright <laughs> yeah definitely <laughs> expired a little bit ago yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um and um so yeah it was that and and there's there's a there's, there's an excellent book about francis johnson that that i found at one point um so it was a combination of those things and that just it's uh when you find all of this happened in the area where you live it's it's, it's pretty incredible yeah. So maybe could you give uh, kind of a who was Francis Johnson kind of kind of background? Because I like you, I mean, I, I grew up in Pennsylvania, but I did not know about Francis Johnson until last semester when I was taking a class on uh, 19th century African-American music. And it was kind of like a broad survey class that addressed a lot of things. But um, we did, uh, I think, a week and a half or two weeks on Francis Johnson. And I was like, how did I not know that <laughs> this guy existed? So maybe for our listeners who might also not know, could you give kind of some some background on on who he was as a person? Sure. Um, really briefly, he was um, he was born to an interracial couple um, here in Philadelphia. Uh, in the early days, he played violin and he played the what they call the key bugle. Mm -hmm. um, well, his early days, one thing that's very interesting considering what's going on now, he was, he was born in 17, 1792. In 1793, there was a, there was a play, uh, the yellow fever hit the city of Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. um, devastating, I mean, I think killed like 5,000 people, which back then, in the small area that was Philadelphia, that, that was devastating. And I think a lot of people, they just, they actually just left the area. I read, I think I read that a lot of them escaped to Annapolis or something like that um, during that time. And, um, but when things started to come back, um, there was, he was, it was just timing almost like where he was born in the right place at the right time because the arts, 
started to flourish in a city like Philadelphia. Um, and he was right there in the middle of it. So he, I mean, he, this, this, his life was just so fascinating because he was, he was, you know, it was during, during the federal period here in the United States. And mm-hmm. it was a time when um, military bands, there was the, the Marine band, I didn't know this was, you know, it was originally stationed in Philadelphia um, <laughs> and moved to, to DC. Okay. So he, um, he would write, he was writing music for the, um, for like band, like band music. That's how yeah. one, one of the first, his first involvement with bands and, um, and a traveling, they were called the principles that he would write music for them also. Um, I'm wondering, do you know kind of like what the music scene in Philadelphia was like around the time? Uh, I mean, you mentioned a little bit with the Marine Band being stationed in Philadelphia, but like what I'm, I'm wondering, you know, what were the opportunities for a man like Francis Johnson? I mean, he, he really did make a name for himself. I mean, I'm sure we'll get into, you know, all the things he did throughout his career, but just kind of generally, you know, what was the what was the music scene like for, you know, an African-American musician in a major U.S. city? at the time well um for him well there was a group of people who were they were like called free africans and they lived in the part of philadelphia that now is called society hill mm-hmm. um it's interesting when you read the history of this there's documentation about what a beautiful neighborhood it was in this part of philadelphia and his function mostly was the uh, like high society playing for like balls and different mm-hmm. things like that. The, the fireman's ball, or he'd write a piece and bring his band to play for the daughters of whatever group or something like that. Um, and, and dancing. Um, it was funny because we had to, dancing was something that was not allowed at one point. Um, it's like focus. Yeah. It's founded by the Quakers and it was very, uh, dancing was considered bad, and especially polkas. Like that was really bad. Like, mm-hmm. um, but right around it's again timing. Um, around the time when he began to flourish was they had actually gotten rid of that, and people were able to have dances and and um, not dances in the way we think of dances now. Um, they were um, they, uh, they were like quadrilles, and 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 they had these parties called quotillions. I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. Mm-hmm. But, um, but he would write the music for these things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and so he was extremely busy yeah. uh, when he would, with what he did in the city. It went way beyond that. I mean, I could get, get into that about his travels, but, but that's what he did when he was here. He mostly wrote for those sort of uh, social functions. Yeah. Gotcha. And he was, uh, he taught as well, right? I think I was reading somewhere that he kind of maintained a studio and he taught. Uh, Keyed bugle and maybe some other instruments because I did he play violin at one point too or maybe started on violin yeah that's right um and and he did we were lucky because one of his students wrote down something about his impression of when he showed up at the house um and he talks about how he showed up and, and he got to see Francis Johnson's studio um and he could see the instruments all over the place he saw a desk sitting there with some compositions and ink ready to go mm-hmm. and um and I remember there was a quote where Francis Johnson told this student, he's, he was like, come study with me and I'll make you a ritual. So in, in a year, you know? Oh, there you go. <laughs> so, yeah. That's awesome. There's definitely a marketing himself pretty strongly there. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that, that plays into what, even his career. Same thing. He's excellent at marketing the group and marketing himself. 
how, how would he do that? Would that be through like newspaper advertisements or? Yeah, and that's what's really fun in the research to, to read the news, newspaper advertisements. We, that, we do have that. Mm-hmm. So um, whenever he was going to whatever town, he'd make sure to take out an ad in the newspaper saying how much it would cost to get in to the, the dance, the function. And... Gotcha. Was he primarily uh, focused on performing in Philadelphia and the surrounding Pennsylvania area, or did he tour the country, did he tour the Northeast? You know, what was his scope of travels like? Well, that's a great question. The first big trip that he did was was to Europe, hmm. um, and that was he. When you, he wrote that he was doing it to expand his musical knowledge. Um, so there were five of them, and it was a big thing for them. I mean, imagine there was no passports like we have now. So hmm. there was a, a very wealthy uh, patron. I think his name was James Fortin, uh, who was a, a sailmaker. So if you think, you know, back then, that's your business, you yeah. <laughs> you're here that you're doing well. Um, right. But, and uh, he was, he, him and his daughter, they both supported Francis Johnson. So he wrote a note, I think, uh, so that he could get some sort of, have some, so they have papers on them when they traveled. Mm-hmm. So they went to, um, they went to England and they played in concerts there. And when they were in England, he actually met uh, Johann Strauss. And Strauss, because we know that he met him because he came back with manuscripts, um, Hmm. things that he arranged from Strauss. Uh, And there's another guy that he met, uh, he went to France and he met this guy, again, pronunciation, I think it's Moussard, who had a style of concerts called the promenade style. What he noticed was there were people, people could walk around, they could eat, they could could talk. Mm -hmm. The music was playing and it was very affordable like the average person it wasn't like super expensive uh and he took he really liked that style he ended up bringing that back to the united states and so but that was his big first trip was to europe and then after that he's well he had a kind of a regular gig he would do up in saratoga uh saratoga new york so he would travel there every summer um and and then he started to expand he expanded all the way out to i believe missouri as far as um how, how much he traveled. Wow. He traveled all over the country. And that's a big deal back then because it's not like now where we can just hop oh, on yeah. a plane or, I mean, it sounded awful, the, 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 the sort of what they had to do. They'd have to take yeah. a boat and then a coach and then another boat and then ride a horse. And yeah, it's not yes. like I'm sure a, a European tour must have taken at least a year probably to, to do all that and get over there. And by the time you come back, yeah. It was a year. He spent a year. That's... Yeah. Now, did he do that on his own, like just just by himself? Because he had a he was a band leader in Philadelphia too, uh, right? I think he he led a band. So did he did he ever take his band over to tour and perform, or was that first initial tour just kind of like um kind of you know personal educational like musical educational stuff? No, that's a good question. It, well, the, I'm because I remember when I first heard about his European tour, I I was imagining. Um, I was imagining actually like a big group of them because it said it does say in the, in the works in the literature that he took a band, but it really was just five musicians. And it was interesting because they played key bugle, but they also played violin, so that was kind of part of the thing. And they would sing, so they would play all various instruments. And yeah, right. uh, and yeah so it was, that was five of them. And as years went on, his group would get bigger as, as he did um, other things. 
Gotcha. You get paid triple if you can uh, play three instruments, right? <laughs> <laughs> Very good question. The see if there was nothing back then. Yeah. <laughs> when they were playing the wind instrument, because, uh, what do you say with them being able to trade off on the string instrument stuff? When they were playing wind instruments, was it all brass, do you know, or was it mixed brass and woodwind? I never saw anything that said brass and woodwind. I would see uh, things about bugle and violin and things about the fact that they sang, mm-hmm. but I never saw anything that said, said, said woodwind. Hmm. Interesting. And then the, just kind of a, a random question I have, maybe going back a little bit, being a violinist and then picking up the key bugle, is there any documentation on how he came into learning the key bugle and becoming such a virtuoso on that instrument, or has that kind of been lost at this point? I know he started in, on the violin, and that was because he would play in these pubs, uh, and he would even pair up. There was a guy who was like a chef, and they would do a thing where they where he's a very famous chef, and he would play at the same time, and so he'd always pair that and, and play violin. And there was tunes, just like a fiddler, you know. Mm, yeah, um, yeah. But uh, but yeah, it's kind of interesting that that notion of going back and forth, which and because it's kind of it actually helps probably because you can't play all night long on. Um, yeah, I, I thought you were going to say at first it's like one of those things where it's a musician and like a painter and a musician's playing while the guy is painting. I thought it was going to be he was playing while the guy was cooking and the, the music inspired the food. <laughs> <laughs> he did have a thing. They, they, were, they were paired up this pair. And it's a good idea. Someone should bring yeah. that back, actually. Yeah, yeah, that'd be awesome. <laughs> Get some pretty good taste in food out of that. Yeah. <laughs> so in terms of the music that Francis Johnson was writing and uh, performing, is there any notable characteristics in what he was doing on either front, either writing it or performing it, that is notable in terms of progressing the American band movement or American music, we might call? Well, I think the thing that was interesting was that um, they talked a lot about sound, and we don't have any recordings of this, but they would talk about sound effects that he would create during concerts. Uh, things like there's one piece he wrote for a fire engine um, company and they say that somehow he was while he was through his trumpet it sounded like someone shouting fire fire (laughs) (laughs) so um and i and there was another there's some other things about about birds they somehow created the sound of birds it's sort of these sort of uh special effects that are that um that was clearly really innovative what he was doing uh, by, by all these different special effects during concerts. And they were clearly concerts that were designed to entertain people, which again was, that's, that in itself is, was back then was, was very innovative. That idea of just, this is just for you to sit and listen and, and to, to enjoy and, yeah, this, this concert. Mm. And you mentioned earlier how Francis Johnson was kind of tied into high society in, in Philadelphia with the, the music and stuff, but then with it being more entertainment music, was there ever, any uh, crossover that you know of in Francis Johnson's writing between what we would call popular or dance music or anything like versus art music or anything that's a little bit more sophisticated or did he kind of sit more squarely in the uh, the pub music like you were saying? Well, I mean, what I could tell from the research I did, it seemed like he would get commissioned to write music for a particular occasion. Like, like, I don't know if you guys have seen Hamilton with, mm-hmm. uh, oh, yeah. 
Well, like, you know, they show like Lafayette. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he likes to Lafayette's part of when he comes to America. Well, so I'm doing the reading, I'm finding, I'm reading about uh, Lafayette was coming, came down to Philadelphia. It was a big event. So he, at that point, Francis Johnson was a big musical superstar in the area. So he wrote all the music for the, the ball that, to welcome Lafayette, General Lafayette. Oh, cool. into the, yeah, and it was cool to see that intersection of history there. Um, yeah, so that's, so I think for those are sort of formal occasions, he would write for the occasion, even when they went to Europe, which is something even my group, we do that too. Uh, one of the reviews said that they played one of the marches from that area. Hmm. So, and then, so that's really thrilling for people when they see this foreign band and then they're playing like one of your marches. Yeah, um, yeah. And so there's a little bit of uh, documentation of that. Too bad Lin-Manuel Miranda didn't include Francis Johnson and Hamilton. That would have been awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so much more work. <laughs> that's, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I had never fun. seen Hamilton, you know, obviously because like, it's impossible to get tickets for it when it was like actually running as a show on Broadway. But when it, when they put it on Disney plus uh, we watched it and I was, I was blown away. I had, I had seen, or I had listened to the soundtrack. Um, and I remember back when I was in high school, like my English teacher, Lin-Manuel Miranda was like kind of workshopping the beginnings of it at, I want to say like the white house or something, or like some like poetry event. Mm-hmm. And he had like kind of the first, you know, the, the opening of the, of the whole show. And I, re- I remember like seeing that in high school and then, you know, seeing what it turned into was fantastic. But that's a, that's a side note. I think Hamilton's fantastic work of uh, work of art. I had a question about so Francis Johnson is writing all this music and being commissioned to write this music, and was he able to publish any of it during his life? Because I know that there's, um, you know, a lot of a documentation about how some some musicians, especially African American musicians, who were writing music were kind of able to publish but a lot of times their names would be left off or like their royalties you know it's a whole big mess you know on actually making any money from publishing the music that they wrote so i was he able to publish music during his lifetime uh it's a good question his music was published and distributed really widely but it was by this his his friend his name was richard willis um and i hope i'm getting that name right um and he with people had they had pianos in their in their parlors, and so they'd love to get this new music, new tunes to play. Um, and so this was distributed all over the place. Especially, I think something happened. There was like something that happened um, where an orphanage. There was an orphanage that burned down to the ground. It was a really sad story, actually, because the um, there were there were groups of firemen, and there was like this one group. There were the there were, um, African. Uh, I don't think they, said they didn't say African-American back then, but they were like the African firemen troop. But the city kind of decommissioned them and didn't let them exist. Mm-hmm. And because of that, they couldn't, this one orphanage caught on fire and no one, the other, the other truck that came couldn't, didn't have enough, like they, they couldn't put it out. And it totally burned it up to the ground. And, um, and Francis Johnson wrote, uh, he wrote a piece about that whole event. Um, and I think because that was something that was back then probably sort of international, national news, that the piece then also became well-known. Um, so he was clearly very conscious of what was going on in society around him. So, and then, but then when you look at the end of his life, 
you see that he died with, with no will and like $200 to his name. Hmm. And you wonder, how is that when yeah. his music was all over the country, his, you know, his written music? So I, I guess there's probably there's some, some truth that he didn't profit from hmm. all of that music that he wrote. Yeah, that's unfortunate. So are you saying that Richard Willis is almost like a, a pseudonym? For Francis Johnson, if we were well, to see he was an actual person, he was an actual friend of his. Um, because I remember reading about, and they were clearly really good friends because he was very, seemed like he was, you know, he was very sad when, when he passed away, hmm. uh, later in Francis Johnson's career. So, um, well, was, was Willis a composer also? Or if we are to see Richard Willis on music, then we can basically assume that it's Johnson's. Well, that's a good question. I, I mean, he was a publisher <laughs> for sure. Oh, okay. And and definitely the titles. I remember. I thought I remembered seeing his Francis Johnson's name on title pages. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I've seen it for like a Philadelphia Grays. He's he's listed on that one for sure. Mm-hmm. I've I've seen that one on eBay for like a thousand dollars. Nine hundred ninety nine actually. Yeah, it's crazy. In the time we were saying how he was able to perform you know all over the place and go on all these international tours and we're not quite sure why he ended up the way he did but it yeah it sounds like during his time period he was very well received and and did have a lot of opportunities is that fairly accurate or do you think that he was kind of like scraping scraping gigs all over the place no 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 that's a question um well he definitely toured a lot i mean he definitely toured he would go to when he would go up to that summer thing that he had in Saratoga. There was actually a story that that one point they got cheap, you know, the the, the hotel managers, and they hired a different band. Um, and they and he didn't take it too. From what I read, he didn't take it too too poorly. He just was like, okay, fine. He likes, you know, I'm sure he had plenty of other work. Mm-hmm. Then like that band, they mentioned them once, and then they don't mention them again anywhere in the literature. And, um, and then by the next summer, they were calling Francis Johnson again. Mm. So it didn't go that well. Um, and his reception was, I mean, we have to think of the times. This is pre-Civil War. Mm. Uh, so they're traveling, at one point they traveled to Missouri. Um, but there were, there were slaves. Uh, and these, they weren't slaves. These were free men. You know, they, the group, they were black, but they were free. Mm. Yeah. But it's in some states, it's illegal to just go play a concert as a free black man. Mm. And they were in Missouri, and while they were there, they um, they, they were going to get arrested. Oh. Someone found out, and and they, I think they even got attacked. And they, you know, there's, you read the, you know, the history; it talks about them like them attacking them with bricks and things like that. Um, and 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 for that reason, because they were breaking the law by being free men and in the state of Missouri playing a concert. And he also was one of the first people to play integrated concerts mm-hmm. in the United States where blacks and whites played on the stage together. That oh. was not a thing. Interesting. Um, yeah. So it's, it's a, you know, and you, you, you want to meet someone like that who's that far ahead of their time, you know? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. He's such an incredible figure. Right. Mm-hmm. Now his bands, were they, the bands he led were they integrated bands, or did they did they start out as just African American musicians, or were they integrated from the start? I wasn't able to find much, uh, kind of about the makeup of the bands he led. I'm wondering if you know anything more that you've come across. What I've seen that 
they were all black musicians. Like the one that went to Europe, that mm -hmm. one definitely, because they were worried about them. Um, mm -hmm. That's why they did all this extra documentation for them when they, when they traveled. Right. Um, so it was later when I came across things that said he, they integrated the band, and, which starts to make sense because he, had, he was born of interracial parents. So, you know, you imagine, you know, he probably was much more open-minded about, about that. And yeah, yeah. And, and, and even the area, like what, what, even the time period, we, there was much more of a, um, the, the problems with race really crept in as you got closer to the Civil War um, in certain regions. Uh, there were certain regions where, where there were groups of free blacks who lived very nice lives where they had their, their, they were doctors, they were lawyers, they were, um, they were professionals. And, um, and he was kind of, that's why I think he was born at the right place at the right time. Yeah. And it, at one point there was some law that basically was passed that said that just stripped them of all their rights. Um, people that lived in the Northeast and including, I mean, Africans that lived in the Northeast. So, mm. but yeah, before that, it sounds like they were, they were living a life that was, I mean, there were some restrictions, as, I think as far as they weren't in the upper echelons of government, yeah. mm -hmm. but as far as in society, it, yeah, it sounds like uh, progress was being made at the time type of thing. And then a major step back, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, you keep, you know, I, I remember I had to keep reminding myself that this was pre-Civil War, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, so... Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the, the country was very different back then. Mm -hmm, for sure. Cycling back to uh, that, that guy that you met in the museum that, that questioned your knowledge on Francis Johnson. Why do you think, to basically answer that guy's question now, of why Francis Johnson? Well, I think for him, it was a little bit like, this is important history. This was an important musical figure. And I think he, he knew that, at that by that time that I was a musician, didn't know about him. Um, this is an older gentleman, you know, one of these old mm -hmm. wise guys, you know, when yeah, I say yeah. wise, I mean, really knowledgeable and, <laughs> you know, it's kind of the guy at the barbershop who can like tell you the history. It's like one of those guys. And, and, um, and so probably one of these guys was ahead of his time, ahead of his time, because now, people are really making a big deal out of this, like going back in this history that we've almost lost. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so I think it's really great because it's uh, ultimately, in, in, I'm not in my field, classical music. We tend to think of just Haydn and Hummel and uh, Haydn and Mozart and all the, the these European Strauss and the big mm -hmm. European composers. And we don't realize there's all this music happening that we're that we're not giving any credit to it's crazy yeah that's something that steven and i mention on this show a lot is that especially at the college level when music students are going through music history you know and you know maybe now being a little bit further removed from it we're able to see that it's not quite as linear but at least when you're being taught it you know and you're reading it out of a book and somebody's lecturing you about it it's easy to slip into this idea that music was as linear as they're kind of teaching it in that class. And you essentially go from, yeah, Beethoven. And then from Beethoven, you kind of start getting into piano, you know, 
uh, impressionistic, you know, Debussy piano music and then 20th century piano music. You know, it's, you know, I'm obviously skipping some important things that are talked about, but vaguely it goes from that super heavy orchestral tradition and then into, you know, modern, you know, modern piano music and modern, you know, maybe it'll end with film music if you're lucky. But, you know, a, a lot of times it'll skip over John Philip Sousa. A lot of times it'll skip over jazz. Uh, literally, I've never heard of, you know, the 1820s to 1880s, you know, band movement, you know, in America. That's definitely never mentioned in in college music curriculum. So, yeah, it's it's insane that, you know, somebody that was so known for his time, you know, Francis Johnson, being in all these different styles, you know, being a violinist, playing quadrille music, playing you know, cornet key bugle solos and all these things. And, you know, it, it takes stumbling upon it in a museum to, uh, to find out about them. It's, it's unfortunate. We, we think it needs to, to be taught more for sure. In, yeah. in colleges. Yeah. And I've definitely got up on this soapbox before, but it's like, especially like I, I did my undergrad at a conservatory. So it was very Eurocentric, the, oh. the music history curriculum. And I think maybe because there was so much other history going on, you know, in the late 1700s, early 1800s in the United States, because it was such a new country and, a, you know, such an interesting, you know, societal time. But like music was a huge part of that. And we don't know about it. I mean, I like when you think of American music, like what you're taught in, like, I'm thinking back to my music history. It's like, what did what did we talk about before, like Scott Joplin and then like the other names I think of are like Aaron Copeland and Leonard Bernstein, not to take away from the contributions that they made, but it's like, there's so much before that. And then especially be Chris and I are euphonium players. So like, we're going to, we're going to want to know about band history. I don't, we didn't talk about any band stuff, you know, it was all orchestral. So that's, you know, a goal of the show is to kind of shed a light on that early band history. And some, someone like Francis Johnson, who was so ingrained in that, you know, kind of all, not just in Philadelphia. I mean, he, he contributed so much music to that, you know, to that movement. It's like, why don't we talk about people like Francis Johnson and like the other composers who are writing for unique ensembles? I mean, I didn't, I didn't know what a keyed bugle was really, you know, until I, you know, Chris and I started doing this research. It's like, yeah, these instruments don't really exist anymore, but especially in the United States, I mean, there's such a rich history there. And then you you trace it forward, you know, through the military bands, and then you, you know you got stuff like DCI, like drum corps that are, that started out at least as all brass. It's like there's a line here that we're not exploring. So, yeah. Anyway, I don't know. I don't really know where I was going with that, other than to just vent a little bit. So, <laughs> is that when you, when you read the history, you see that this was really popular music. Um, you know, this was really entertaining and popular, and. Um, and and really a really well done. You read about how when those reviews they talk about this is just the uh, how finely tuned the ensemble was. Mm-hmm. So you know it's a shame we don't we don't have recordings to, of it to really hear it. But mm-hmm. but um but I'm assuming it really was really well done and very and something that was popular for people um of, of that time. Right. Have Definitely. you tackled the key bugle yourself? <laughs> Have I played a key bugle? Um, probably at the Trumpet Museum. There, there was, when I was in, at Curtis, the, uh, our teacher, Frank Cataravic, he'd take us over to the Trumpet Museum and we'd all try all different, all different trumpets. And um, 
Is yeah, that ever but, is that ever something that you think you might want to get into a little bit, or you're, it's more fun just to kind of research it and play it on modern equipment? <laughs> it's so fun. So, you know what? If you could play like one of the trumpets we have, I'm sure you would put that thing down and like <laughs> be like, "Yeah, I'm playing a Bach now." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bach artist. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, I wonder if they would have. Uh been impressed or or scared or or what by the the stuff that we have now you know going if they had a time machine and was able to see our modern equipment you know i'm sure they would have loved it yeah yeah exactly it gets better and better like you know you know sure they wouldn't be fighting to play the thing that's like all out of tune and like hard to get a sound on yeah and then in terms of kind of this music being played today uh i saw through you know, on your guys' website, you guys list as one of the shows, I guess, is, is a way that it can be characterized. The show that you guys do titled The Francis Johnson Project. Yeah. Is, is, is that accurate? Yeah, I, I actually wasn't able to find that much information about that online. So I wasn't sure if it was a complete concert that you guys do or if, or if it was like a project, like a purely research based. Can you can you kind of talk a little bit about that? Sure. I think what happened is that was... That was a while ago. That was before all of us were using the internet nearly as much as we do now. Um, yeah, I don't think there's a lot out, but it was it, it was a big concert because what happened was we got a big grant um, to put on the Francis Johnson Project and here in Philadelphia, and we went all out. We had uh, Branford Marcellus, my cousin came in. We had a uh, time for three. Um, there's like there's a pretty famous string trio. Mm -hmm. uh, the narrator. There was. We had the full 11-piece band. We commissioned music. That was when we went and found a bunch of the music, and we arranged it for all of these groups, um, including arrangements where we all played it together. Mm -hmm. um, and um, yeah, so and we did, we did, or we even did the because he would commission music like for the fire department, and we, we even got one of those like machines, like uh, oh, yeah. the siren machine, and we did that during. We tried to do things during the concert that he would have done, mm -hmm. um, and uh, and. We packed the halls with 1,400 people and yeah. um, at Amber, or however, however big that hall is. Um, so, so that was just a one-time performance, or was that multiple shows? It was um, it was one-time performance. It was, that was Irvine Auditorium. And then the next year, uh, I'd done some research and found out that he played also in the churches a lot. So we played in Holy Trinity Church in Rittenhouse Square. We did a, a kind of a second Francis Johnson um, concert there. Yeah. And when when did those both happen? Do you remember what years those were? A while ago. I mean, that was sometime between 2007 and 2009, I would say. Gotcha. Was there any like anniversary event or something that made though like that the time to do those performances? Like why why then? Why did you do those project performances at that time? Um no, actually there wasn't really an anniversary. It was more just that was a few years after I discovered who he was. Mm -hmm. um, and then it, it took a couple of years of talking to people around the city. And I basically gathered a lot of organizations and other people to get involved with the project. So it just took about, it took a couple of years to get to the point where, where we ended up with the concert. Gotcha. And that was done on all modern equipment. Those, oh, yeah. those projects. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, yeah. So after having done those two concerts, those two years, uh, did you come away from being able to really dig into it and and play it on your horn uh come away from it after the fact with any changed perspectives or 
or feeling like you learned anything that can inform either other styles of your playing or anything like that? Um, I think the main thing we got from it was it was just interesting to take melodies that are that old and mm-hmm. and to rearrange them and and some of them were really quite catchy. So what you that's what you start. So for us, the way it affected our group uh, was his his whole thing of doing concerts to entertain people. And, and you could tell by how much he did with his marketing and how he did all these effects and all, it was all about keeping people entertained. And that really affected how we do our concerts all over the world. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, it works everywhere. That's the amazing thing about it. Mm-hmm. We, we were in China at one point, we were playing a concert and I was wrong. I was like, oh, we shouldn't talk. We should just play. And my colleague, no, no, let's just talk to him. And we, we actually just did our normal show where we talk and we get him laughing. Mm-hmm. And you start to see this sort of common thread that we all have as human beings mm-hmm. that can we can really it comes out with music because mm-hmm. there's no uh, you know and, and the emotions are just universal and Francis Johnson was doing that you know in the early 1800s yeah. so it, it's a, it's profoundly affects the, the way we approach the way we play when we tour all over the world yeah. That's kind of a, a beautiful thing to have pulled out from that experience, you know. You know, we, we've had other guests where we kind of ask similar questions, and they'll they'll get a little, you know, technical and mechanical, and be like, "Oh, it changed the way you know I approach this articulation, that kind of thing." But it, it's really beautiful that you're that you're saying that you've kind of adopted the the spirit of just like his entire outlook on like performing, almost. You know, that's awesome that you're able to uh, incorporate that that feeling into your guys's show now that's really yeah. cool yeah, yeah. That, there's a lot that changes you know over the years but at the end of the day you know you're still performing music you know and music is the same like you know as a as a concept i guess is you know more the same now as it was back then than it is different so and that that especially speaks to you know what you were saying earlier about when he was touring Europe, kind of the, the function of music in society at the time, you know, that it was popular and, you know, like people were, uh, you know, walking around with food and drink, you know, and talking to each other and enjoying, and you see like orchestras sometimes now, you know, try to come back to that a little bit. I forget what orchestra it was, but you know, Andre, the, like, Andre Rio, like that kind of stuff. Yeah. Or even just trying to create, you know, a little different experience, um, you know, like where, where they'll take a section of seats out and like, you know, you bring a blanket and like a picnic, you know, in the concert hall, I've seen, you know, some orchestras do that and try and get back to that, that idea, you know, that music is especially classical music, not, not that it's not serious music, you know, but, you know, at the time it was written, you know, people were clapping in between movements and saying, play that movement again, you know, they liked it so much, you know, it, it wasn't such a, like a stiff thing that it's kind of become now. Um, you know, and, and those concerts that you were mentioning that, you know, that your kind of takeaway from working on the Francis Johnson project is, you know, kind of maybe, I don't know what to put words in your mouth, but maybe kind of getting back to that where, you know, it's entertaining, you know, it's supposed to be something that you enjoy, not something that you, you know, feel like you have to sit through and then somehow you're more, I don't know, some other type of way because you sat through a Beethoven symphony or something like that. <laughs> yeah, like a participation medal at the end just for, for making it through. No, it's, right. a, it's, a, it's a social, you know, it's a, you know, communal music making audience and performance. Yeah, and I, I think so. I mean, it's, I mean, that's what music's supposed to do. It's supposed to bring people together. And that's, 
but when we when we travel and tour, that's what that's kind of the main emphasis by the end of our concert. We, the reason we intentionally play different styles mixed together is to show people that it's, you know, if you play Bach and it's, and it's beautiful, it's, you can then play Earth, Wind and Fire right after that. And, you know, everyone's fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like no one's head's going to explode, you know? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And, and that's, and we, and because we've done it now in South America and in Asia and Europe and all over the country here in the States, we, we see the response. People don't really, uh, people respond to m- many genres of music uh, if it's played well and played with feeling. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. Are there any recordings of that, uh, that project that you know of? Do you guys ever record any live or studio stuff from that? We have not. That's actually one of the things that's kind of when we get through this pandemic mm-hmm. when we get studio, that's one of the things that because we own all the music, we want to we want to get all that stuff recorded. Very cool. Well, keep us up to date if that if that happens. That'd be awesome to to help promote that for you guys if that when that gets off the ground for sure. And that kind of answered the next question I was gonna have is if the two performances of the Francis Johnson project, if for you, if you kind of see that as uh you know, a bubble and, you know, a great experience and it, and it is what it was type of thing, or if you were ever planning to revisit it, but it sounds like the, the answer is yes. So you do plan on revisiting it. Especially now, because I think there's much more, it used to be that sort of uh, that like black history music would be just sort of in its own bubble in a way, like that's, you study that and then, okay, now let's study everything else. And mm-hmm. I think the canon is expanding and people are pushing for that. So I think it's going to be in schools taught a lot more. And I think it's going to be, I think in the concert halls, it's going to be, people are going to want it in, mm. in the concert halls more as we kind of expand our thoughts about what was music in the United States. And it's great because it's expanded the repertoire. That's all it does. It just widens the tent and it creates more arrangements and more music for all of us. And so it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a nice thing. And yeah, that answered my my other question, which was going to be, do you see uh, Francis Johnson's music as being something where people, you know, going forward, want to learn about him, should learn about him by listening to like that chestnut recording and by reading the books? Or uh, should his music be a part of the hands on development of, you know, I guess we can say music students, you know, cultivation of music history and in their performing repertoire and stuff? You you think that his music should be continued to be played? I I think we should. It would be great to all the stuff that he wrote, like to get it recorded. It, it's going to sound different because you know this is several hundred years later. Yeah. yeah. But um. But yeah. Why would we want to lose touch with all those melodies and things that that he wrote and that were entertaining people here in this? You know, it brings you. You can bring you back that era. Um, so. I hope that happens, and you know, I hope that our group's part of that. But I hope that happens, not just us, I hope a lot of people do it. I know a lot of our listeners do prefer period instruments and period mouthpieces, and they prefer, they prefer performing music from any time period, you know, but if we're, we're talking mid-19th century, uh, on those instruments because, I guess... A good way of saying it is that they're killing two birds with one stone. They're getting the repertoire and they're getting kind of the oral uh, presentation of what it would have been like at that time. Um, but then we've, you know, we've talked to a lot of people and 
you know, have equal opinions of the fact that it's fine to focus just on the music and learn about the composer and the time period and all that stuff, but on modern equipment. Because like you said, if, you know, at the time they were playing on the best of what was around, you know, they were playing on the cutting edge technology back then. So in a way you're just continuing that progression of playing on the, the equipment that's available now kind of thing. Um, I'm not sure if there's necessarily a question there. It's kind of, we've, we've already made that point, you know, by talking about it already, but does, I don't know. Any thoughts on that? Any closing thoughts on on this idea of modern versus period equipment? Yeah, no, it's a good question. And I'm glad that people do it on the period instruments because, uh, I mean, we were we were guest artists at the Great American Brass Band Festival one year. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we had finished our set, and um, one of the uh, bands, one of those period bands played, and it's – and and they were really good. They're, that's the thing. It wasn't like it was out of tune or or you know poor quality of sound. Mm-hmm. Beautiful sounds that they were making, especially the soloist uh, Kevin. Um, uh, and he, I mean, he was playing this thing it was really high and really delicate and really challenging. And he's doing it on you know, on this mouthpiece. It's not like what we use. Yeah, yeah. And he's playing 12 cent sharp the whole time too, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. You want to hear that though. You want to hear, because that lets you know that back then there were virtuoso players. That when they described him being virtuoso, that means it was pleasing to the ear. So we don't want to lose that um, tradition, even though we now have modern instruments where you can do all, you know, a lot of things are easier in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would never want us to lose, to lose that that you know, people that did that maintain that, that that tradition yeah and then i'm curious if there were to be a modern reproduction of a key bugle that's basically made as well as it could be and could be essentially be considered like a modern instrument just with that old type of mechanism would that be something that you'd be interested in in tackling or or well, that'd be, yeah that'd be really fun it would yeah. be because i mean it would it would take time to to master it you know whoever mm-hmm. masters an instrument these usually these, these instruments master us you know? <laughs> <laughs> <You know? Yeah. laughs> but it would be fun to to try i mean it would be it would be fun to tackle it um you know it's funny you read about the Haydn trumpet concerto it, they it, it, you know it was the first time we played this like a you put keys on the on the um trumpet and it, yeah. it, it took him a long time before he could play that piece Mm-hmm. A big major accomplishment to play the Haydn trumpet concerto on this new instrument. Mm-hmm. Um, Anton Weidinger, I think that was his name. And, uh, and I remember reading it, like, yeah, it took him a year and a half to be able to. And now, you know, I've had, you know, I was teaching when I was teaching in Spain, I had a 13 year old kid that played it with an orchestra, you know. So, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's incredible. Yeah, yeah no, this, this, has been, this has been fantastic. I learned a lot. Um, you know, that I didn't know about Francis Johnson. Uh, where can, where can people go to find more about him? Um, and then also more about you, you know, what you've done, what you're up to, all that kind of stuff. Oh, well, you know, that, uh, actually it was in the notes here, that book by Charles K. Jones, mm-hmm. uh, that from my time when I was in Chicago researching and here, that was the most complete, um, that, book that I found about Francis Johnson. So there's little bits and pieces in, in the historical books, but that one's really just focuses on his life. So um, 
I'm not sure if it's still in print, but um, I've seen it on Amazon for like 80 bucks. So it's it's <laughs> not in print, but people are are willing to part with it for a, a few bucks. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I got a phone call because um, Winton Winton is super interested in Francis Johnson, and, and I get a call. He's like, he's like, yo, bro, you have that book about Francis Johnson, right? Send it to me. <laughs> I was like, oh. I'm like, I didn't want to send it. <laughs> yeah, never see it again. I know how fair it is, but I think he had, he was doing something where he was using it for some research, and then he mailed it back to me. So yeah, gotcha. yeah. Well, so good. so Winton's interested in in Francis Johnson history as well. Oh yeah, yeah. I heard, I heard him talking. He was at one of the, maybe it was ITG or something, where um, I think he found out about Francis Johnson from me, hmm. which is even crazier, you know. Yeah, uh, right. But, um, but I remember him mentioning it also. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just crazy how it's like almost a sleeper. We need to uh, we need to make that not a thing anymore. We need to get his name out there yeah. a little bit more. Yeah, and I think uh, University of Pennsylvania has an archive as well. Uh, when things open back up, I think they have an archive of a lot of his uh, writings and manuscripts and things. Um, Does his horn still exist anymore, or a horn of his? Yeah, that's an interesting question. There's actually a uh, that was one thing we, we did miss. Um, Queen Victoria, he wrote a piece, and we we created an arrangement called the Victoria Gala, um, well, an arrangement of his piece, and um, he played for her apparently when he was in England on this European tour. And as a gift, she gave him a silver cornet. It says, or, so I don't know if it was a trumpet or cornet. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember reading somewhere that said that he was buried with it. I don't know if that's true. Mm-hmm. That's myth or. Um, that's in Philadelphia, I assume. I, I'm not sure where he's buried. Actually, I'm, I'm not mm-hmm. sure. I, probably right. If he spent his entire life there, most likely he was buried in Philadelphia. Most likely he was buried in um. The, you know the, the graves were separate for blacks and I'm blacks. So there's um these there's a name for them. I can't remember the name those type of graves but most likely he was probably buried in one of those in one of those graves maybe one of our our listeners might be familiar with it and they can they can let us know by shooting us an email or a facebook message or something and we'll uh we'll let you know if uh if we hear anything about that i'm that that's actually really interesting yeah i would love to know yeah so what about you is there any uh i know we're we're mid-pandemic and like steven said a lot of gigs are canceled and stuff but uh anything going on with you coming up or uh a location where people can learn more about you well you know what we did because of the pandemic um and i spent the summer trying to figure out how can i you know how can i help what can i do to help people during this time um and what we came up with is we have these things we call retreats where we used to go and we do a, get a rental house and bring a bunch of people, bring guest artists. We can't do that now um, because of the pandemic. So our director of operations said, why don't you do a virtual retreat? Um, and she actually just ran the virtual sort of uh, outreach thing or virtual masterclass that James Galloway did. And she said it was really successful. And she's like, you know, you should do that with for the retreats and have it virtual. So I floated the idea to some guest artists and I was just really pleasantly surprised at who said yes. <laughs> you know, that's why I guess during a pandemic, you know, you have a better chance at these people like say yes to things. And, and it's not for sure, but right now I think we're going to have Alison Balsam who's going to be a guest artist and, and um, 
and the Esteban, the principal trumpet of, of the um, Chicago Symphony, is going to be a guest artist, and, and Mike Sachs, principal of Cleveland Orchestra, is going to be a guest artist. Um, all, all the, and, and we're going to, and we're going to bring people from the music business and from from and from schools, like the dean of Juilliard School, and just to help give a broader education. And it's going to be like 13 weeks. It's going to start in October and run through December, uh, just once a week on Sundays. And um, people, it's going to be a virtual sort of mass class, but they're going to have those sort of people coaching. And um, and this on it's on. It's not going to be on Zoom. It's going to be on a platform that's designed for this sort of thing. Very so cool. We're excited about that. It's going to be, um, you know, I think everyone's going to get a chance to have some real growth doing what for some people would have been a, a fall semester. Yeah, that's fantastic. So if anyone wants to do that, they're free to go look on our website and find the link and um, they can sign up. There's different levels you can just pay for. Gotcha. We'll, we'll be sure to, to link to that in our show notes uh, for sure. We can, when this goes up on YouTube, we can throw it in the description on YouTube too so that people have it there. But for for the audio format, can you can you say what the the website is? Oh sure, um, you you can find it going to www.rmpbb.com. That's Rodney Marcellus Philadelphia Big Brass.com, and um, there's a link there. You can follow it there to, to the seminars. It's there. Awesome. All right. Well, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Rodney Marcellus, for coming on to the Early American Brass Band podcast. We really appreciate you taking time out of your morning to speak with us and and like i said humorous with some of the questions <laughs> that we were asking especially me prodding about period instruments and stuff but no it's all good thank you so much it, it means a lot to us no chris and steven this has been wonderful thank you for having me thank you again ronnie marcellus for coming on to the early american brass band podcast it was awesome having him on uh like we mentioned at the beginning of the episode he's such a prolific performer and uh, pedagogue and showman and all these things. And it was awesome to get to pick his brain a little bit about the sleeper who is Francis Johnson. But hopefully not a sleeper anymore, get, helping to, to get the name out there to a wider audience for sure. Yeah, definitely go check out... Um... Uh, maybe that book, if you can find a copy that's less than eighty bucks, <laughs> or uh, or the, some of the some of the recordings of his music that are out there. And also, we mentioned the University of Pennsylvania has an archive, and I think uh, some of that stuff is digitized. So at least a biography is. Um, so if you're interested, there are resources that we will be sure to link in the show notes for this episode. That's on our website. Just click on show notes, and it'll pop right up, and you can read uh, more and dive a little bit deeper into Francis Johnson. And if you go onto our website and go into the resources tab and click on bibliography, uh, on that page, we already have linked uh, the book to Francis Johnson. So it's already there if you want to look at that or any other books. Uh, we kind of have it organized by different sections. So feel free to browse that resource uh, if you want to do any reading as the summer comes to an end, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you again so much for taking the time to listen to episode 21 of the Early American Brass Band podcast. Anything, Stephen? 
Uh, well, featured album. You got a featured album. Oh yeah. For this, <laughs> we're we did, we're not moving away from that. We still love doing the featured albums, uh, giving you guys some music recommendations. Uh, so for this episode, fittingly enough, uh, we have an album by the Chestnut Brass titled "The Music of Francis Johnson," and it is exactly what you would expect. It is. <laughs> A bra- uh, an album all oh, john philip Sousa. Oh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> right now it's uh an album of uh the music of francis johnson so uh, it's got uh some polkas some gallops um all sorts of stuff and it's played very well the chestnut brass i believe plays on uh keyed bugles and whatnot period instruments yeah. um so you'll get to hear it as close to accurate as as you can possibly get uh in the 21st century uh for some 19th century music so we hope you'll check that out you can find links in the show notes and in the what is it the discography tab yeah that's what it is uh along with a lot of other cds so we hope you check that out and we thank you for listening and i think that's about it yeah we will see you next episode which will be released in two weeks remember we are moving away from the weekly release schedule so in two weeks, we will have our next episode, which will feature Yari Villanueva discussing the 26th North Carolina Regiment Band. So please join us then, and we'll see you then. Bye. Bye.